You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Next week, I will be traveling to Canada where I'm going to be enjoying some time of fellowship with folks that are in Ottawa and in Toronto in back-to-back conferences with my good friend Timothy Bentz. And on our website, bridemovement.com, you can get the details on how to register for those events if you happen to be nearby or simply want to travel in to hang out and experience what's going to happen. I'm very excited to be taking this trip to Canada and I think that there's going to be a lot of fruit. I want to also give a massive praise report. Weeks ago, months ago, I said, hey guys, I am praying for something. I am believing God for 100 reviews on the book, Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth. And you know what? We now have, the last time I checked, 102 reviews on the book Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth. And I I am just extraordinarily thrilled. I am so happy that that has happened, that this many people have responded, left reviews. Amazon has been systematically and continually out of stock on this book. I keep calling them, telling them, get my book in stock. What are you guys doing? I believe there's some intentionality behind stuff like this when this happens, but maybe I'm just paranoid. Who knows? Uh, The thing is, even with this issue, we have still seen 102 of you respond, and that makes the book more easy to find and more realistic in the minds of those that haven't heard about us to purchase because they see that there has been a response. And the goal is to get this tool into the hands of as many men, women, and children as possible. Why? Because the prayers work. They execute deliverance. They yield better health. They produce, I mean, all kinds of good things in the lives of those that are using them because they are the Word of God framed and um, packaged for deployment to specific circumstances and issues. Now, With that said, I want to say thank you for all of you that continue to support us financially. Folks, Bride Ministries is a ministry sowing into us, is sowing into kingdom work. And you guys are helping us to look at bigger and bigger objectives as we move along. We are continuing to help survivors by issuing uh, grants and paying for coaching hours for those that can't afford help that have satanic ritual abuse and government-sponsored mind control in their backgrounds. But now, I'll tell you, folks, I continually get letters from people, heartbreaking letters. You don't know, Dan Duvall, the situation that this person that we love is in. They need an escape. They need somewhere to go. What do you have? We heard about you. Someone gave us your name. What do you have? You know what I have to tell these poor people? I have nothing, guys. I have a dream, I have a vision, and I have a savings account that we're working on, but I have a dream to get 
my hands on real estate that we can use as temporary housing solutions for survivors, sexual abuse uh, victims, uh, trafficked victims, and so forth to get out of their situations. How am I going to do it? I'm going to do it with your help. So we're continuing to add to the vision. You know, we we talked about the vision of the fireplace church launched the church. Talked about the vision to help survivors, helping survivors. We have weekly support groups for the survivors that are getting coaching from our coaches. We are offering other groups throughout the week. Uh, we, we have transformed this, what began as a email list before we were a podcast. I just sent off emails <laughs> once a week to people that felt like reading my stuff. And we have fleshed this out into a platform that offers teachings. We now have the Bride Ministries Institute, which is a training platform. All vision, I told you, we're going to build it. It's been built. What else are we going to build? Solutions for survivors that need temporary housing to escape their situations. And I'm telling you, as you guys get on board with us, you're going to see it manifest. www.bridemovement.com is where we have a donate page. You can write to us or you can just use the internet. We even accept cryptocurrency donations at this point. So folks, thank you for those of you that are already supporting us. And for those that have been thinking about it, there's no better time. With that said, uh, Australia seems to be back on the agenda. Uh, We are now in the planning um, phase. So I don't have any specific dates yet, but I will say we're looking at something early 2019. For those of you that love me in Australia, I want you to know that I love you too. We love you. We love our Aussie friends at Bride Ministries and we're coming back. So um, I will be giving updates on that as time moves forward. With that said, I, I think I'm done for today. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Why? Because men, I want you to sign up for Fundamentals for the Mighty Man. We are doing an eight-week course at Bride Ministries called Fundamentals for the Mighty Man. And we're looking for mighty men. And you know what? This has been the first class that I have seen such a little response to. I'm scratching my head and wondering... Is, is this, am I actually communicating that this is available? Women, if you know that you are married to a mighty man and they are not yet convinced because they haven't signed up for our course, I want you to talk to that mighty man and say, hey, mighty man, there's something for you. Dan Duvall wants to hang out with you and Bride Ministries needs some help. <laughs> we need your help, women, to get men on board. <laughs> I appealed to the men last week, and 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 I didn't see too much response for that. I'm, I'm going to be honest. It's just it, it it's just moving pretty slow. But we are interceding now for the men, mighty men. There is a course we starting the first week of October, Monday night at 7 p.m. and we're going to go eight weeks. And it's going to be powerful. So I want to see you there. And women, we're asking for your help. You know where the mighty men are. Find them and bring them in. (laughs) All right. With that said, we're going to get to the program. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall.
Folks, I'm sitting here with my pal, Mike Shreve, and I'll tell you guys, every time I have him on the program, it's a good program. And we had him not too long ago, and, and, and I said, we, we just have to have you back, to which he politely obliged. Now, folks, Mike Shreve has been involved in global evangelism since 1971. He has preached all over the world. Um, in all different types of contexts. He also uh, pastors a church called The Sanctuary in Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books. He has been featured on many television and radio broadcasts, including ours, and is joining me today to talk about this book called Who Am I? And it's a book about identity in Christ, which is a subject... I personally never get tired of. Mr. Shreve, welcome back to Discovering the Truth of Dan DeVall. Well, it's always a joy to talk with you, and I'm really, really looking forward to this, uh, this time of uh, interacting, uh, because I believe the Spirit of God is going to flow between us, Dan, as we have this conversation. Well, I, I believe so. I, I think it's going to work kind of like this. I'm going to ask you a question and just listen and soak in your anointing, brother. <laughs> and, and folks, uh, we almost recorded this earlier, but postponed it because we didn't want to rush the content. I, I'm telling you, this particular conversation is going to be so loaded with nuggets. You will probably have to listen to it multiple times. And, and, and in order to open up the conversation, I am going to ask you, uh, Mr. Shreve, what was the journey that you took from the point you got saved to the point that you began to understand the nature of your identity in Christ? That's about a 15-year gap. Uh, because when I found the Lord Jesus, of course, I tell people quite often in my preaching, when you find Jesus, you find yourself. And the three big questions that people ask are, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And all of those questions are answered when we connect with the Savior of all men, Yeshua, the Lord Jesus. Uh, I came out of Eastern religions, as you know. I was a teacher of yoga and meditation at four universities. I ran a yoga ashram. I was a student of an Indian guru. And in one day's time, all of that dramatically changed because a former student of a man named Yogananda, who had become a Christian, picked me up hitchhiking the very day I was praying that if Jesus was the answer, he would give me a supernatural sign that day. So it was all a divine setup. And of course, when I switched from a Far Eastern worldview to a biblical worldview, it automatically changed my whole idea of who I am. Because uh, within the Far Eastern uh, mindset, uh, on an ultimate level, you are God, which I believe is an absolute uh, absurdity uh, that we will never be God and we can never claim such a thing. Uh, at the time, I thought it was wisdom, esoteric wisdom, but now I realize I was under deception. But then for the next 15 years, I functioned in my identity before I really understood it because I became very passionate about evangelism. 
uh, out of the ordinary evangelism. I traveled around the globe. I went to India, went to Africa. Uh, here in the U.S., I would carry witnessing teams to Hell's Angel gang camps. Uh, I would go down into the downtown areas of cities where the worst uh, kind of uh, activity took place. And so I was functioning as an ambassador of Christ before I really understood the technicalities of what that calling is. And I was functioning as a witness, Jesus said, uh, Terry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high and you shall be my witnesses. And the original Greek word that is translated uh, witnesses there is the word that is also translated martyr. And uh, so a true witness is somebody that has a martyr mindset that is willing to give up their lives if necessary to stand for the truth, which is exactly what I was doing. But once again, I didn't understand the theological basis of it. But then 15 years later, uh, I was studying the names of God, which is a fabulous subject. It just pulls back the veil on who God is to know that he is El Elyon, the Most High, that he is El Shaddai, the Almighty, that he is Yahweh said, Canu, the Lord, our righteousness, and all, all the details about the name for God in the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton uh, transliterated YHWH, which I believe is probably Yahweh. Uh, some say Yahovah, uh, and there's some differences of opinion on that. But all of that is so uh, powerful because it pulls back the veil on the character of God, the personality of God, and builds faith in us concerning our expectations toward him. Mm. Well, during that time when I was studying the names of God, God impressed me very powerfully and spoke to me very profoundly that it would be just as important for us to know our God-given names. Uh, and so I began researching it. I thought, how curious. That's interesting. Let's delve into this. And I started going through the Bible thinking I might find 40 or 50 at most. And much to my surprise, I found over, over a period of years, focused on that subject, I found over 1,000 names and titles that belong to the people of God. Some are very obscure, found only once or twice or maybe a few times in scripture. And some are very well known, found hundreds and even thousands of times in scripture. But it, it, when you see all of the names and titles God has given you, it's like this huge panoramic view of our spiritual identity and how impossible it was for God to just describe us one way. Mm -hmm. And so he has hundreds and hundreds of revelatory words that he places on the body of Christ to give us this grand picture of who we are in his uh, drama of creation and what he has called us to be and what he has called us to do and where he has called us to go. And uh, it's an exciting revelation, fantastic revelation that has empowered me uh, doubly before I walked in my identity without knowing what it was. But now I walk in my identity and fully understand the uniqueness of what I'm fulfilling as a child of God. Man, I actually didn't know that there were that many names ascribed to us um, before looking at your stuff. I, I mean, 
it, it is it is profound. You know, a lot of people do have some understanding that God has many many names for Himself, but in you know, reductionist Christianity, people often reduce the identity of the believer down to a no good, low down, worthless sinner saved by grace or some other nonsense language that completely uh, subtracts from the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so I I just want to start here. You know, in your book, Who Am I? You don't go through thousands, but you, you definitely go through some really, really powerful powerful names that God has given to us. And, and in this program, I'm going to have you walk through some of those for us and help us to understand. And you know, because we are bride ministries, I, I, I want to start on the bride and let you talk about what does it mean to you to be the bride? What does it mean to me to be the bride? Well, I guarantee you, you have explored this subject so much, it would be very challenging for me to uh, come up with something you haven't already said. But I, I will say this much. Um, when, you, when you realize that you are a part of the bride, striving ceases and unity is awakened. When you realize just as much as... Uh, the Bible said, he who loves his wife, loves his wife, loves himself. And, uh, and we are so one with the Lord that uh, we have been brought into a union that is spectacular. I, I think a good place to start would be the love that God has toward us. I was driving through West Virginia late at night one night and meditating on the love that the bridegroom has for his bride, that God has for his people. And something was birthed in me that changed my life forever. Uh, I was thinking about the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. And toward the end of the prayer, he said, Father, uh, I pray that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And just prior to that, he said, uh, the glory that you've given me, I have given them. The word that you've given me, I have given them. That the world might know that you love them even as you love me. And that exploded in me that I am just as beloved of the Father as Jesus, the firstborn son. And that was almost impossible for me to fathom at first. That I'm just as beloved of the Father as Jesus, the firstborn son. Striving ceases then, and uh, celebration begins. And I, I think uh, when we realize we're in the bride, you move from the level of struggling as a servant-minded person to rejoicing in the relationship that you enjoy with the king of the universe. And uh, his people are a part of his bride elect who share his throne and he delights to give us his kingdom and he delights to give us the destiny as the queen of heaven, so to speak, to reign over all things with him for all eternity. How do we wrap our minds around the immensity of a calling such as that? Uh, I think probably Daniel, uh, another good way of me 
introducing some revelation into this concept of what it is to be the bride is to share with you the first title that I studied when I began this revelation. Uh, mm -hmm. I can remember the city. It was mm -hmm. Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I can remember I was reading in Deuteronomy 32 where God said that he would keep us or guard us as the apple of his eye. And uh, it's a scripture referring to Israel where he said he found thee in a waste howling wilderness and he uh, instructed you and he led you about, he kept you or guarded you as the apple of his eye. And I, uh, and I looked it up and found out much to my surprise uh, the apple had nothing to do with the fruit. And you see that scripture all the time uh, depicted on a plaque or something with the picture of an apple next to it. And it has nothing to do with the apple. The apple of the eye is the pupil of the eye. It's the center of the eye that is filled with a liquid solution called aqueous humor. And it's the most sensitive part of the eye. And it's the part of the eye through which the light passes in order to produce an image on the back of the eye. It's, it's uh, a picture, a symbol of how if we are the apple of God's eye, then we are the thing he's most sensitive to. If the apple of the eye is the most sensitive part of the eye that can cause the most acute pain when injured, so also if you and I are the apple of God's eye, the thing that causes God the most pain is our pain, the pain of his people. That's why Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, not because he was weeping in the face of death, but because he was sharing the pain of his people. Uh, that's the thing that pains him the most. And uh, something else that's interesting, he said he would guard you as the apple of his eye, if you're in the beloved, if you're in the bride of Christ. Well, how do you guard the apple of your eye? If someone were to strike out at you with their his or her fist, you'd throw your arm up like this because you're much more willing to take a temporary blow and bruise to your arm than a permanent injury to your eye. Well, that's exactly what God did. God saw that the death blow of sin was coming the direction of his people, where sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, mental death, emotional death, spiritual death, ultimate death, the second death. And, and so Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the arm of the Lord. So he threw his arm up and took the blow, and he was bruised for our iniquities, but it was to keep or to guard the apple of his eye was so that we would not be permanently blinded to the things of God. And if I can say that, and I can, and if you can say that, that I am the apple of God's eye, then I'm convinced right then and there, he's in love with me. He's in love with me. And if he's in love with me, he will, like the song says, uh, He'll, he'll tear down every wall. He'll kick down every wall. He'll tear down every lie to, uh, to pursue my soul. And he'll climb every mountain. He'll go to any extreme to rescue me. Uh, I don't have to convince him to do it. It's already out of his mind. Uh, now, I, I'm not sure. Uh, we've never conferred on, on what your belief is about this. Uh, and, and if you believe differently, I'm fine with it because these things are are um, discussable and they're things that we can uh, ponder and still be in awe no matter what mindset we take. But I tend to believe that the bride 
is comprised of all the redeemed of the Old Testament to whom God was married and all the redeemed of the New Testament. Because uh, when Jesus died between the cross and the resurrection, he preached the gospel to the dead. And a nation was born at once. All of the righteous that were waiting for the Messiah, the Mashiach, in Abraham's bosom were born again simultaneously. And they were married to God in a far more spectacular way than they had been under the old covenant. And, and they joined the church at that moment. The church is an eternal entity that embraces both old and new covenants. And I believe every child of God potentially is married to the bridegroom. Now, I've had friends through the years that believed it's a more exclusive group, and maybe uh, that's your feelings. But I feel ever just like uh, my son when he was growing up didn't always act like a Shree, but he was a Shree. Uh, my daughter didn't always act like she was a Shree. Uh, most of the time she did. But uh, she was still a Shree. She bore the name even at times where she hadn't, or he had not grown up into the value system that I espouse as being very important. And, uh, and so in like manner, a person can claim being a part of the quote-unquote church without really walking in the revelation of what the church is, because the word church means called out ones. And they may need to grow into being a called out person. They have that. It's like the oak tree hidden in the acorn. It's like that calling is inside and it just needs to emerge. And, and so um, that's my feelings. Well, and I read what you had in your book, and that's why you know I wanted to ask you the question because I wanted you to expound on this a little bit. And I, um, I, I am aware of different people that uh, do apply different degrees of ex exclusivity to the bride. It's a, it's actually a, an area of more debate than I thought when I named the ministry. <laughs> I, I thought it was simple, and <laughs> then it was like, oh, there's a lot of streams on this one. Um, you know, and and one of the biggest uh, points of argument is actually not even if it's the old and new saints, the Old Testament, New Testament, but if it's the saints at all, because there are people that think the bride is a city and that is a separate conversation than the saints, the children of God. Like, you know, you have a city and it comes out of heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. And they say that's the bride then you have the people. But I don't see how the city exists independently of the people. I think the people and the city are one. And you kind of gleaned on some of that as you wrote about this subject in your book. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I believe that. And I believe one of the indications of that is the fact that there's 12 gates to the city. Mm -hmm. And each of the 12 gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. And there's 12 foundations to the city, which may not mean layered foundations. It may mean 12 foundation stones all linked together, like the 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate. But the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb are in the foundation. So the gate into the city are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the foundation is uh, the uh, is comprised of the names of the apostles. So in essence, God is saying that this city is being populated 
by those who came into it through the old covenant to be ultimately based on a new covenant revelation. And I believe that in itself is an indication that the people of both covenants are a part of the city. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And he saw it afar off and embraced it and confessed he was a stranger and a pilgrim in the earth. And uh, wow, that's my confession too. I don't fit here. <laughs> but uh, we are headed for a city whose builder and maker is God. And I believe, I believe that there's many metaphorical, symbolic, prophetic aspects to the description of the city in the book of Revelation. But I tend to believe it is a literal city. Now, how God will work out the logistics of a city that would be about as big as uh, from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. on one side, uh, I don't know exactly how he's going to work out the new earth and the new Jerusalem and how all of this is going to be put together. But I do believe it, it's not just metaphorical uh, or not just prophetic. And God moves in layers of prophetic revelation. And so I believe the people that have a lot of uh, symbolic applications to the different aspects of the city, like what gold represents, what jasper represents, what the various jewels of the foundation represent. That, that's all very relevant. But then again, those may be celestial substances that bear mm -hmm. that appearance that are very literal. And, and so that tends to be my mindset. I love that. I love that. When I started reading all of the metaphorical passages, the passages that didn't make any sense to anyone, so they said it was a metaphor, an allegory, as literal spiritual realities, that was a big shift point in my walk with God. Because I began to have a window into spiritual mechanics of his kingdom that I could not get another way. And um, yeah, there is so much to this conversation. But thank you. Th thank you for talking about all of that. You know, I, I get really excited about that subject. You know, it always breaks my heart when people say, oh, no, there's no one that's the bride. That's just the city. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I don't agree. Um, what would New York be if there were no New Yorkers there? Uh, what would Atlanta be if there were no Atlanteans there? And and so uh, the city and the bride are one. They're one. And, and there's, uh, there's a great scripture in the Old Testament that represents that in Isaiah's writings. I don't know if I can uh, find it quick enough to include it here. But God talked about how he would be married to the city and his sons and daughters would be married to the city. So and that's so in so. Isaiah's writings. And so that, that is the place of our union. Mm. That is the place where our union is evidenced with the bridegroom. And so um, there are and, a couple of things about New Jerusalem. There are a couple of things about New Jerusalem that I would like to bring out. One one, uh, it, I'm motioning to my wife. She's showing up at the uh, office right now. Uh, one is uh, the name Jerusalem. The name Jerusalem means possession of peace. And uh, what's ironic about it is if there has been a city in uh, the world that has been conflicted, a con constant conflicts, constant pressure, constant division is the city that is destined to be the city of Shalom. And of course, the word Shalom means uh, 
more than peace. It means peace, harmony, health, prosperity, fullness, wholeness, nothing broken, nothing missing. And uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, Sar Shalom in the Hebrew. And he will reign in the city, Jerusalem, uh, which means possession of peace, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that is far beyond any calmness of mind we've ever experienced in this life. And that's something that's promised to the bride. And uh, we may go through all kinds of conflicts on our journey, the direction of that eternal union. But we know for sure there is a peace that passes understanding. And speaking to Jerusalem in Isaiah's prophecies, God said, I will extend peace to her like a river. And so this river of the divine peace of God will flow through that city. The other thing, and we could talk the whole program on the bride, so I don't want to get too focused but uh, on this particular subject. But the other thing that's really spoken to me personally is the 12 gates to the city are pearls. And pearls are the product of suffering. And the way it happens is a grain of sand or a parasite enters into the folds of the flesh of an oyster. And the oyster tries to rid itself by opening and shutting, opening and shutting, flushing water in and out of the shell to try and rid itself of this uninvited guest. And quite often it's not able to. And so it will do what I call the next best thing, which will be to coat that uninvited intruder, that grain of sand or that parasite over and over hundreds of times with a solution, mother of pearl kind of solution called NACRE, N-A-C-R-E. And in the process, something beautiful is created out of something very painful. Something wonderful is created out of something terrible. Something lovely is created out of something ugly. And it's a pearl, something of great value. I believe the bride of Christ is represented as the pearl of great price. Jesus is the merchant man in the Matthew 13 parable that uh, sells all that he has to buy the pearl. He was the one that paid the price to purchase his bride elect, his pearl of great price. And the very fact that the gateways into New Jerusalem appear as pearls is indication to me that the suffering we go through in this life is a gateway into this rapturous bridal union with the bridegroom of all eternity. Well worth it to the degree where the Bible says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And incidentally, that mother of pearl substance, nacre, is a milky-like substance. It appears like milk. And so when we face demonic intrusion, when we face trials of life, we cover those over with the milk of the word. It is written. It is written. It is written. We apply the word of God to our negative circumstances. And in the process, a gate of pearl is formed for each one of us individually. I like to see it that way. <laughs> that is a beautiful picture. Really, really, really beautiful. Um, speaking of beauty, you know, one place that you find a lot of beauty is in a garden. Uh, gardens are cultivated. Uh, gardens are planned. They are organized. And then... God does this funny thing and in a certain place in scripture calls us 
his garden. Can you talk about that? Well, uh, that's found in chapter five of my book. And actually the scripture uh, that I quote is a version of first Corinthians three, nine that says we are only God's co-workers. You are God's garden, not ours. You are God's building, not ours. And so uh, over and over again, also the bride in the song of Solomon invites the bridegroom and says, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. And so the bride represents herself as a garden. A garden is a, a haven of rest, a haven of peace in a strife-filled world. You can be going through horrendous mental battles and emotional strife and just walking into a garden with its fragrances, with the sound of birds, with butterflies flitting from flower to flower is so renewing to the mind. It's a haven of hope and rest in a world that sometimes looks hopeless and full of strife. And that's what the garden is to the bridegroom. This world rejects him. This world strives against him. Uh, he's, he, he is not accepted. He is not celebrated in society as a whole. It uh, doesn't value what he values, but his garden-like bride is a haven of peace in the midst of a world that is pitted against him. And so God refers to us as his garden. Then, as I mentioned, the bride in the Song of Solomon says, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Now, what are those pleasant fruits? Uh, the fruit of a tree or the fruit of a vine represent a number of things in scripture. Uh, it can be the fruit of good works done for God. It can be the fruit of the character of God. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All of those are Christ-like attributes, Christ-like characteristics that are fruit in us. And fruit always contains seed and is for the purpose of multiplication. And when we bear the fruit of the nature of God, love, joy, and peace, it contains the seed of the word that can be planted in the lives of others for the purpose of the multiplication of the body of Christ and the advance of the kingdom of God in this world. And uh, fruit can be not just works done for God, not just the character of God, but our response of praise to him. Because in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, let us therefore offer unto God the sacrifice of praise to God continually, which is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks mm -hmm. to his name. And so if the beloved comes into his garden, he hears thousands and thousands of people worldwide that are worshiping him. Uh, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your name. Hosanna in the highest. It's like all this fruit coming to the bridegroom as he visits his beloved bride, his garden. And uh, that's another name we can spend the whole program on. Uh, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> that, that's such a beautiful picture. I mean, just like the last picture you gave us. Um, and I can tell that you've taken a long journey of romance with God that your relationship with him has really been kindled by the fire of his passion and that you carry that. 
and um, see it's revealing through the identity that he's given his people. Um, what does it mean to be the Lord's special treasure? Uh, that is hard for most people to imagine, even being possible. And yet uh, God spoke that under the old covenant uh, in chapter 19 of Exodus. He refers to uh, Israel right before he gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the stipulation. He said, now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So those are the two conditions for the promise. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What you treasure is very dear to your heart. What you treasure is very uh, significant to you. In a world full of insignificant, mundane things, special things, are very significant. And I would dare to say that each son and daughter of God is very significant to God. And, and he would consider you his treasure. And whenever I speak on that, one thing I love to remind God's people of is that Jesus exhorted that where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. And that can be taken negatively or positively. If your treasure uh, involves your material possessions, that's where your heart is. If your treasure is your career, your job, that's where your heart is. But if your treasure, most of all, is your relationship with God, that's where your heart is. Well, in like manner, if you want to know where God's heart is, find out what his treasure is. And his treasure is his, uh, his people, his bride. He, he refers to us that way more than once in Scripture. Uh, so I would dare to say that God's heart is pulsating toward us moment by moment and day after day. Uh, because where God's heart is, there is his treasure also. So you don't have to coerce him into moving for you. He's already ready to do that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I believe, you know, we spend a lot of time at Bride Ministries training people uh, to do different kinds of things, whether it's putting out tools and equipping for deliverance and spiritual warfare tactics and strategies and all of that. The funny thing is there's a lot of people, and, and this breaks my heart, but I see it regularly, that think if they just get the right formula it'll all begin working for them and, and do not actually take the time to develop the deep revelation of identity and deep intimacy with God as they are employing techniques for doing spiritual warfare, deliverance or whatever have you. And so there's a lot that gets missed and overlooked and people come out of balance, which is why I love to come back and do programs like this and to spend time talking about the importance of concepts like identity and intimacy with God. Because, you know, and this is something that I have also tracked, the further I go with God, 
the more confidence I have in his ability and power, which comes from knowing him, the more power flows through my vessel. So when I pray, the atmosphere changes. Uh, when I worship, it's an immediate, you know, ascension at times. It's just like I'm already in heavenly places. I've been singing to God for three minutes, you know, and all these kinds of things. That comes through, one, knowing who I am, and two, developing and fostering this deep knowledge of who he is. And then all the other stuff, the tools, the techniques, the revelation that goes along, it enhances effectiveness. But, but at the core, you cannot... You cannot think, oh, I'll just learn spiritual warfare and not know anything about my identity in Christ. It, it, it's like, well, but what are you using? We, we war through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Like, you need to know who he is. And um, this is so good because we need balance. Now, I want to talk about mountains and, and actually at the beginning of this year spent some time talking about mountains I, I started talking about the believers mountain and then i quickly wound up journeying into the mountain of god <laughs> mount zion and, and we just were i mean going through crazy crazy revelation on some of this stuff at the fireplace church and i mean i, I had the word blowing up in my face it was just a, a lot and then I look at your book and you said, yeah, we are the inheritors of God's mountains, plural. And I'm like, oh, I got to read this. So I, I want you to talk to us about mountains, God's mountains, plural, and what it means for us to be the inheritors of them. Well, you've just picked out one of my favorite titles for the people of God. It's found in Isaiah 65, verse 9 where God said, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains and my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. And so when you see the whole verse, it's very clear that it's a corporate inheritance for all the people of God because God said, my chosen ones, plural, will inherit the mountain." And my servants will dwell there. So number one prerequisite, you've got to be chosen of God. Number two, you've got to have a servant mentality. You exist in this world to serve God and to serve others. And if, if you are chosen of God, and if you recognize your role as a servant, then God said, you're going to inherit some mountains. Now, uh, what mountains would qualify to be called God's mountains? He said he would bring out from Jacob, which is another name for Israel, an inheritor of his mountains. And then he narrowed it down to one tribe. And he said that inheritor of his mountains will come out of Judah. Well, of course, Jesus was the line of the tribe of Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. And we are his spiritual offspring, whether we're born again Jews or Gentiles. We are still, we still trace our spiritual roots back to the Messiah. So we, in a sense, spiritually, are all part of Judah. Okay, I just wanted to lay that foundation so that uh, it's very clear why we can lay claim to this scripture. Uh, well, if God said, I will bring out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains, which mountains are his mountains? Well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So 
every mountain belongs to him. Kilimanjaro belongs to him. Mount Everest belongs to him. But I believe, <coughs> excuse me, I believe that God's holy mountains are those sacred summits where God demonstrated or revealed something very profound in the evolution of his plan of redemption. And normally it was a high place in the history of the human race where lowly mankind was lifted up to a high place of revelation and God condescended to come down and manifest himself. And usually this happened on a literal mountain peak so that the literal, the physical mirrored what was going on spiritually, which is very intense that God would do that. And just a quick overview. For instance, the first time you find covenant language in the Bible is when the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat and God uh, installs a covenant with Noah and with his offspring and gives certain covenantal promises, especially the one that he would never overflow the world with a flood again. And so that was a holy mountain. And uh, when I see or imagine, envision, Noah seeing the first rainbow and hearing God grant him that, that covenant commitment, then I've inherited that mountain. I've inherited uh, the same kind of covenant keeping God in a relationship with him that is dependable that Noah had. And so that's one of the mountains that I would count a part of my inheritance. Then you go up through the history of God's dealings with man. And the next major mountain you come to is Mount Moriah, where Abraham had this wonderful revelation where God supplied the ram to take Isaac's place, just like Jesus, the son of God, took our place in death. And that was on Mount Moriah. I've inherited the revelation that took place on that mountain. Then you have Mount Sinai, where the law was given. And the same God that wrote the law in tablets of stone with his fiery finger, has written the law in my heart and in your heart. So I've inherited Mount Sinai. Gerizim was the mountain where the blessings of God were proclaimed in Deuteronomy 28, and the people of Israel shouted amen to it. I've inherited Mount Gerizim and all the blessings that God declared, and I'm shouting amen to it. But uh, the most important of all the mountains, of course, is Mount, uh, Mount Golgotha. Uh, the mountain where Jesus was offered up and became sin for us. And I've inherited that mountain because I've inherited the benefits of the cross, uh, the washing of my sin, and the importation of righteousness. But then futuristically, the next mountain I need to uh, occupy my attention with is Mount Zion, because Mount Zion is going to be the hub of a new creation. And uh, I've inherited all the spectacular prophecies about Mount Zion, which will be the city of the great king, uh, synonymous with New Jerusalem, uh, that's on a high mountain. Well, that high mountain is Mount Zion. And the word Zion incidentally means fortress, uh, because we will be a part of an eternal fortress, impenetrable fortress of faith and love and joy. Uh, forever and ever, we will inherit Mount Zion, we will reign there with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So it gives us this panoramic view 
from Mount Ararat to Mount Moriah to Mount Sinai to Mount Gerizim to Mount uh, Calvary or Mount Golgotha, more perfectly, Mount Zion. All of these are part of my inheritance because I've inherited not the physical location, but the revelation of what took place. And uh, I want what's coming to me. I want my inheritance. That's a fascinating perspective. That is a fascinating perspective. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I love the subject of mountains because there's so many, so many, um, you know, scriptural, I, I mean, meanings for mountains. You know, one, one of the things that you do on a mountain is you ascend it, you know which means that you can actually climb up, even in the way you're describing it, it just has this picture that you can climb up into these revelations that we've inherited. You can be at the base of it. You can ascend a little higher into it. You know, there's a pinnacle of these revelations. Of course, all of the pinnacles are in a full revelation of who Jesus is, but it's like, yeah, you know, you could take a long journey into each one of these and just find a radical adventure with God. And I like the way you think about it because it's, it's a way to think about it that allows you to really take a journey with this piece of um, um, identity. Just There's to, one more mountain I should have included. Yeah, tell, tell me about it. And that's uh, Mount Olivet or the Mount mm -hmm. of Olives. Because you're talking about ascension. And the Mount of Olives is where Jesus ascended up into heaven. But better than that is where he's coming back to. Uh, he's coming back to that mountain because the Bible said in Zechariah, I think it's chapter what 14, verse 4, that his feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives and the mount will split toward the east and toward the west. Strangely, ironically, the Mount of Olives was where Jesus uh, agonized in prayer to the point where bloody sweat oozed out of his pores. And I think it's so relevant that that's the place, the location he's coming back to. When we go through painful things in life, we human beings usually don't even like to visit the same street. We'll, we'll bypass that street. We'll go somewhere else because to see the physical location is to relive the pain. And so, a lot of times people will avoid uh, going near a place in, in order to escape the memory of the pain. It just shows you what a champion Jesus is, that he is coming back and he's going to come back to the very spot where he sweated blood and the ground soaked it in because that'll be his way of descending to that very spot of greatest pain and conquering it once and for all. Well, uh, he's my hero. Uh, amen. And you know, it's and even deeper. All of it. It, it's even deeper when you begin to think about some of the concepts of spilling blood on ground. As a matter of fact, God said in Genesis chapter four, the blood of your brothers crying out like there that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. Right. So the, the, when you put blood in the ground, then it is left with a voice. You make a covenant with land through the shedding of blood. You, you can make a covenant with a kingdom or a person through the shedding of blood, but you can also make a covenant with land through the shedding of blood. And sometimes when a lot of 
injustice has occurred on land and there's a lot of blood that's been shed on that land unjustly, that land needs to be healed and there needs to be an impartation of justice for things that have occurred there. Uh, sometimes evil people, they shed blood on land intentionally to put that land in a state of bondage. Well, Jesus put his blood in two main places. He sweated it out on the Mount of Olives and put it on Golgotha. That, I think, to me, is extremely significant. And, 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 and then you come back to, well, where is he coming back? Well, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain's going to split. And so I, I just see so much, so much richness. And I don't even know where all these revelations go. It's just really amazing to even ponder it. Like, wow. You mentioned something that I, I've preached on a few times uh, about the blood of Abel crying out. When I first read that scripture, I just assumed that the blood of Abel cried out for justice, because justice means you get what you deserve. And if Cain had gotten what he deserved, God would have smitten him, he would have died because the law of the Old Testament is a life for a life. He would have been judged immediately, condemned, and would have died. I tend to believe that Abel's blood cried out for mercy. Huh. And that's why the first greatest act of mercy on God's part, instead of bringing judgment on Cain, was to spare Cain and actually put a mark on him so no one would kill him. He protected that murderer, the first murderer. And it must have been because there was repentance and remorse in Cain's heart. I don't think God would have done that otherwise. And I don't think God would have done that if, if uh, Abel had not cried out for forgiveness. Father, forgive my brother Cain. Forgive him for killing me. I believe it was a mirror of what would happen later on with Jesus. However, in Hebrews 13, it says that the blood of Jesus or is it Hebrews 12? Uh, I think it's the Hebrews 12 says that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. So the blood of Abel cried out for mercy, which means you don't get what you deserve. But the blood of Jesus cries out for grace, which means you get more than you deserve. And so it's a notch above mercy. And that's what the blood of Jesus cries out for. In fact, that leads me to another name God has given us, or actually two names God has given us. In Romans 9.23, we are referred to as vessels of mercy. We are demonstrations of the mercy of God in this world. We are containers of the mercy of God in this world. Uh, the whole scripture says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, that he might uh, pour out the uh, that he might make known the the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto glory, and so God juxtaposes uh, the children of darkness to the children of light, and one group is called vessels of wrath, the other vessels of mercy. A vessel is an object that is purposefully created to be filled. Our kitchens are full of vessels. Uh, dishes, bowls, cups, glasses. All of these vessels were created to be filled. And all human beings are vessels. And the thing we were created to be filled with 
is God. His presence, his character, his love, his power. Those who choose not to receive that become vessels. They're still vessels. They're, there's a vacuum there that must be filled that uh, becomes attractive to the demonic, to evil, and uh, they become containers of evil. But uh, those that turn their eyes toward God are filled because there's a missing part of us that must be filled. And that is uh, the presence of God filling our hearts and lives. And we are vessels of mercy. Thank God. But we are also called to be the merciful because uh, having received the mercy of God, we are now called to give it away to others. And that should be a delight. I love that. I talk to me about what it means to be the rich of the earth. Oh, you're you're pulling something out of Psalm 22. Uh, let me let me go to that in the book. It's on page 72 in the book. Uh, refresh my own mind. I, I remember that Psalm 22, like Isaiah 53, is one of the most graphically detailed passages about the crucifixion. In fact, it is so such an amazing psalm because it's like the psalmist David identifies so much with the crucified Savior that he speaks in the first person. It starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And then as you go down in the psalm, it describes uh, the horrendous treatment that the Messiah went through. Like, for instance, in verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots for my clothes. Then in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. And so it's a description of the, the horridness of the execution of the Son of God. Very detailed. And then when you go toward the end of the psalm, it becomes very positive, very uplifting, and it says in verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And then it says in the NIV version, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. So it identifies all those who receive the benefits of Calvary, or more perfectly, Golgotha. Calvary was not really the Jewish name for the hill of Jesus' crucifixion. But uh, those who receive the benefits of Golgotha are referred to as the rich of the earth. It said we would eat and be satisfied there in Psalm 22, and that would make us the rich of the earth. Well, what are we eating? Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And uh, just like Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, but first he blessed the bread and then he broke it and then he distributed it. So Jesus was blessed when the Holy Spirit was poured out on him in Jordan. Then he was broken on Calvary. Then he was distributed to the masses, and we can eat of his flesh, because he was the word made flesh, to eat of his word is to eat of his flesh, and the Bible says the life is in the blood, 
And the Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of life. So to drink his blood is to drink in the Holy Spirit. So we eat of the word. We drink the Holy Spirit in. The nature of God is infused in our nature, and we are enriched in the process. And there are many scriptures that talk about the riches that we have received as a result. To be rich uh, means you're not poverty-stricken spiritually. Maybe you don't have much money naturally, but you are wealthy spiritually. Because Romans 10, 12 says the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And uh, my favorite, I guess, is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. And so when we identify with him in his most poverty-stricken moment, when he was stripped of his relationship with the Father, and he became sin for us, and he was reduced to bankruptcy, morally, mentally, spiritually, because he identified with the sin of the entire human race. That was his moment of poverty. And through his poverty, we are made rich, rich with intimacy with God, rich with the joy of the Lord, rich with peace that passes understanding, rich with revelation in the Word of God. Uh, James 1.12 uh, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised us? And so uh, we become co-heirs, equal heirs of this incredible infinite kingdom that stretches from time to eternity. And uh, we could have been the most beat up, messed up people in the world when we crawled to the cross. But we are the wealthiest people in the world now. Uh, because we have met the king of all creation. And um, that's what it is to be rich of the earth. That's good. All right. This one's a big one, okay? And, and I think that this is a, a big point of confusion for many people. Uh, uh, and so I want to talk about what it means to be the church. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, because because it's what people do, right? They say, ah, oh, church, that place. <laughs> I know about them church folk. You know, uh, church folk could almost sometimes be used as a curse word. Now that church folk, you know, like that's not really what god meant yeah i think a lot of people get very confused they, they they make the mistake of associating church with the building and not an assignment and i really want to let you talk about it for a while uh yeah you couldn't have picked one i, I get more excited about than our calling to be the church because because we are the church we don't go to church we are the church and uh, people have so misconstrued the meaning of that word is from the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. And so automatically, if you're a part of the church, I can assume two things. Number one, you've been called out of the world into fellowship with God, called out of depression into joy, called out of defeat into victory, called out of a demonically controlled life to the protection of angels, 
called out of spiritual ignorance into revelation. I could go down through a hundred things God's called you out of and called you into. But it also reveals to me, if you're part of the church, automatically you have a calling. And a calling means a divinely ordained purpose that's been placed in your life. And 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which were given to us in Christ before the world began. So if I dare to tell you, hey, man, I'm in the church, then I'm also saying the creator of the universe has put a purpose in my life. But 2 Timothy 1.9 is so powerful when you see it uh, as a joint statement. Because it says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. It wasn't because we were such good people, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before the world began. So prior to the existence of the universe, God gave you a purpose. God gave me a purpose. Every saved person listening to this, you have a purpose. But the amazing aspect of it is God in anticipation of your calling, your purpose, saw every mountain of challenge you would ever face, every satanic opposition you would ever face, every personal failure you would ever face. And in advance, he gave you enough grace to climb the mountain. He gave you enough grace to go through the valley. He gave you enough grace to conquer the enemy. He gave you enough grace to recover from the failure. So you will never, never, never face anything in life where you don't already have enough grace, not only to survive, but to thrive. And that's an important thing to see. And when you say, I'm in the church, you're automatically saying that, because every member of this church can claim that. Now, I also love Acts 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28 says, We are the church of God, which he, God, has purchased with his own blood. If there is a scripture in the Bible that proves the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is that one. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just the son of God. He is God manifested in the flesh. And we are the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Daniel, uh, if there's anything I know, I know that if, if you go to a store, or if I go to a store, maybe I need a new suit of clothes, which is the last thing on my list of priorities to do. I hate to shop. Now, my wife is the opposite. She's sitting near me in the other room. She's probably smiling when she hears me say this. She's in heaven on earth if she goes to a mall. I feel like I'm in the opposite place. <laughs> but if, if I were to... If I were to go, how do you guys navigate the shopping trips? Uh, I sit in the car and work on my computer. <laughs> but uh, anyway, if I were to break down and actually go in the store and buy a suit of clothes, then I've got to become more convinced that that suit of clothes. Uh, I've got to become convinced that that suit of clothes is more valuable to me than the price I have to pay, or I'm not going to make that exchange. And so I looked through this uh, stand, uh, stand uh, 
with all kinds of suits on her of that uh, area where they've hung all kinds of different uh, sets of clothes. And I've got to have one that captures my attention, that attracts me, that I feel compelled toward, and I've got to be convinced that's more valuable to me than the $99 I've got to pay, whatever the charge is. Well, in like manner, God looked into this world and saw a motley group of sin-stained, cursed, demonically controlled, darkened sons and daughters of this world. And something about us captured his attention. He was attracted to us, and he decided that we were more valuable to him than the price he had to pay, which was a supreme price. And the scripture says we are the church of God, the called out ones, the ecclesia of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Praise God a thousand times over. For that. If I'm more valuable to Jesus than his own blood, wow, that should increase my faith exponentially, exponentially. Uh, you know, there's one thing I don't want to leave out on this one, Daniel. Uh, there's a lot I could say uh, about our role as the church. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, you are not come to Mount Sinai, which was the place where the law was given, but you are come to Mount Zion, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now, the word translated firstborn there is a plural word. So it's not just referring to Jesus being the firstborn son of God. So it's not just a church titled with his title. It's a reference to all the members of the church. We are the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now, there's a very intense revelation that goes along with that. Because when you go back to the Old Testament and see the patriarchal line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the firstborn son was the one who received the authority of the father, the priesthood calling of the father, because the one who occupied the firstborn son role was the one who got communication from God and had access to God. So that was the priesthood calling. And the authority of the father, the rulership over the family, is the king calling. But also, third, the one who occupied the firstborn son role had the prophetic calling of prophesying the future of the family of God, which at that time was the family of Abraham, uh, the future of God's chosen ones in the world and unveiling the next steps of their destiny. So the firstborn son occupied a king, priest, prophet calling. King, priest, prophet calling. Wow. Well, if we're in the church of the firstborn, I would dare to say, and this is very intense, and I challenge everyone that's listening to this uh, to search it out, that you, if you're in the church, occupy a king, priest, prophet call, that you are called to rule with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You are called to have intimate access to the father with the great high priest himself who rules over a family of priests. And you're called to prophesy because we're all sons of the prophets according to Acts 3.25, sons and daughters of the prophets, and we've inherited a, a prophetic calling. And so that's intense. But I would also dare to say that everyone in the Old Testament who got a firstborn son calling uh, was the one least likely to receive. 
because you've got Abraham, his first son was Ishmael. Ishmael was not God's choice. The firstborn son called him, went to Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was literally the firstborn. The firstborn son called him, went to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. His literal firstborn was Reuben, who came under a curse instead. And the firstborn son called him, went to Joseph, the 11th son. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh was the older son. God bypassed Manasseh and prophetically put the firstborn son calling on Ephraim. So over and over again, it's always the one that in the flesh does not qualify to be a firstborn son, that the, the mantle is passed to. And in like manner, if we are in the church of the firstborn, we didn't earn it because we qualify. I, I should have been disqualified. I was not such a good person. I was a rock musician before I became a Christian. I lived that life and almost died at the age of 19. I was not a good person, but it was the choosing of God, the ordination of God, the divine election that was on my life that brought me into the status of being a part of the church of the firstborn. And I think all of us can say that. I know all of us can say that if we're part of the church. That's so good. Another thing that's really, really interesting that I'd like to consider is the fact that Jesus considers himself to be the cornerstone and he's built the church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means that the church does not exist without a God-ordained governmental structure that's ordained in heaven. Um, otherwise, it doesn't work right. Uh, you know, one of the really amazing things when you look at the origin of the word ecclesia, which is actually in Greece, you know, they were a ruling body of people that voted on things that hold, would hold magistrates to accountability. They would determine war and different kinds of uh, things. This is just historic, historical. And Jesus used the word ecclesia. He's saying, I'm setting up my group here. And I'm going to be the chief cornerstone. There's going to be this government. When everything is in place, the ecclesia has the definitional capacity to determine outcomes in the earth with the wisdom of the head. You know, and, and this is really funny because then you get into this whole thing where Jesus is the head, but he also calls us the head can right. you talk about that well that <laughs> wow you have just opened the door to another two-hour program here uh, <laughs> uh which i don't think we have time for but when i preach on our calling to be the head it usually takes me about an hour and 15 minutes to fully bring it forth i can condense that to two or three minutes but we're missing a lot of meat uh, I guess people will have to get the book, Who Am I, and, and, and get all the details and fill in the gaps. But that was a, a statement in Deuteronomy 28.13. It was the final statement of the blessing proclamations that were made on Mount Gerizim. This was right before the children of Israel were to go into the promised land and possess their God-given inheritance. 
and God wanted to solidify their thinking on certain issues. And so the, the Levites proclaimed the curses of the law. And uh, half the tribes of Israel stood on Mount Ebal and shouted amen to the curses, binding themselves to those curses, which uh, is a little uh, horrifying, terrifying, because they didn't have the help of a regenerative experience to rise up above it like we do. We're, we're very blessed in this era. And then half the tribes of Israel stood on Mount Gerizim and shouted amen to the blessings of the Torah. And they were summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 13. And the peak of it was where God said, now notice the wording, he said, I will make you. He didn't say, I'll give you the potential and you'll strive for it. He said, I will make you the head and not the tail. And you will be above only and you will not be beneath. And the people shouted, amen. And it was sealed. God's purpose in the earth was to take a small band of people. And why did God choose Israel? You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. I think it's 7 and 8, 6, 7 and 8, where God said, the Lord did not choose you because you were more in number than any other people, but because you were the fewest of all peoples. And so God chose the most insignificant people group in the world that technically could have been called the tail of all cultures and nations, the lowest on the totem pole, so to speak. God chose the least to make it the greatest, the lowest to make it the highest, the uh, last to make it the first. And that becomes a pattern in scripture. God's always doing this. When he came by to anoint a king at Jesse's house, he didn't choose the firstborn son. He chose the overlooked one, the despised one, the shepherd boy that's out in the field that the father doesn't even mention. He makes the last the first, and he does that all the time. That's a pattern with God. Uh, and, and so don't disqualify yourself from being the head because you haven't had such a good past. Uh, because God chooses despised, damaged people that are put down, ostracized, overlooked, shut down. Uh, uh, and uh, cut off by other people. And God says, that's the one I'm going to use. That's the one I'm going to choose. That's not always the prerequisite. It's not always the requirements. But quite often, God has a way of doing that. And uh, he says, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the mighty, and so God does things like that just to prove that he is God. And uh, Israel, I, I got to reduce this. I got to get this to uh, just a, uh, maybe a minute or two more explanation. So Israel should have been the head politically, the head financially, the head militarily, the head socially, the head educationally. In, in every area of human experience, Israel should have occupied this headship role. But instead, major empires emerged on the world scene that conquered Israel and subjected Israel uh, to become the tail or slaves to those empires. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. Five great empires became the head instead of Israel. 
Why? Because Israel didn't fulfill the requirement. And that was if you obey my covenant, if you listen to my voice, if you follow my statutes. And so they missed being the head because it was attached to the word if, if you observe my commandments. And so the whole thing kind of imploded and it looked like it failed. It looked like God's old, uh, old covenant purpose for God, uh, for the people of God failed. But then in Ephesians chapter one, I want to get the exact scripture. And so I'm uh, going there in the book on page 155. So uh, we read about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus uh, with these words. This is out of the first chapter of Ephesians. And this is where God turned what looked like uh, permanent defeat for this purpose. It looked like this purpose was null and void. Israel would never be the head. God's people would never be the head. They're dominated by five empires. But then, the, but then Jesus. But then Jesus. But then the Messiah comes. And then God works a wondrous, miraculous work. And it says in verses 19 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about the mighty power of God, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet. So Jesus is far above all principality and power. All things are under his feet. And the Father gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus became the head over all things to the church. Notice that scripture does not say he became the head of the church. Other scriptures say that. This scripture says he became head over all things to the church. Another uh, version of the Bible, the Amplified Version, says this is a headship exercise throughout the church. So in other words, Jesus, when he rose from the dead and conquered all of our enemies, he conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered uh, the flesh, conquered death, conquered hell, conquered the grave. He ascended out far above all things and put all of that under his feet. When we become a part of his body by coming into union with him, we're far above all these things. And all these things are under our feet, which is incredible, amazing, phenomenal, miraculous, supernatural, that right now I am identified with the head. And I like to explain it this way. When I preach on this in my meetings, uh, I'll point out somebody, maybe the pastor or, or someone like that, that everyone knows. And I'll say, what if we came in here tonight and Pastor Smith's head was over here on this side of the platform and his body was over there on the other side of the platform? How many of you agree with me this is a problem, uh, a serious problem when the head is severed from the body? Uh, but that's the way we've been with Jesus. We put him on this high pinnacle and then we, the church, the body of Christ, are these lowly, miserable people, sin-stained, Satan-dominated people in this world. No, we're part of the body of Christ. And the Bible says, as he is, so are we in this world. If the head is in a position of supreme victory and power and triumph, 
everyone in his body is in a position of supreme headship. That's why the Bible said you will be above only and not beneath. Because if you're connected to the head, he makes all things work together for good. He even uses your failures to teach you valuable lessons and to form his nature in you. He's all the time the potter and you're all the time the clay. And he said, I will make you the head and not the tail. And that includes headship over your own personal failures. He turns stumbling stones into stepping stones and setbacks into setups. He knows exactly how to put you in a place of supremacy and authority. And that's what he's done. That's what he's done. And what could not be fulfilled under the old covenant, because it depended on human performance, is fulfilled under the new covenant because of the performance of the Son of God. And through his victory, we share in it and become more than conquerors through him who loved us. Wow, that was a long explanation. <laughs> but I can shout, I am the head and not the tail. I am above only and not beneath. <laughs> <laughs> you know what really gets me, Mr. Shreve, is that the Bible says that we have been given a better covenant based on better promises. I spent a lot of time considering Deuteronomy 28 in light of that passage. A lot of time because it's completely contradictory to the way most Christians lives manifest even when they cognitively agree with the conclusion now this is my final question okay how do we get from conceptualization to manifestation, because it feels good to hear it. It feels good to speak it. It even feels good to finally dig our foot in the sand and believe it. But how do we get from conceptualization to manifestation? What are your thoughts? Well, you can be called the president of the United States of America and bear a title, but what if you played golf all the time? You're not much of a president. You have a title, but you don't have the activity or the works that that title empowers you to walk in. And so my, my response to you is it takes work. It's one thing to claim a bunch of titles. Uh, I am a part of the bride of Christ. I'm one of the children of light. I'm the apple of God's eye. I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. I'm part of a royal priesthood. But to really walk in these things will take some work. It will take fasting. It will take prayer. It will take confessing the word. But most importantly, it will take applying the word to our day-to-day -day life and walking in the reality of these things. It's one thing to say I'm the salt of the earth but then go out there and be the salt of the earth and change society. Just like salt changes whatever it comes in contact with, you should change everybody you come in contact with if you're fulfilling the role to be the salt of the earth. So I guess the most important way we make this a reality from conceptualism to actualizing these things in our life is work at it. 
Work at it every day. When you get knocked down a hundred times, get up a hundred times. Keep trying. Keep fighting. If you're a good soldier of Jesus Christ, fight the good fight of faith. Keep believing in the cross. Keep believing in the blood. Keep believing in the name of Jesus. And keep striving. The only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. That's the only place where success comes before work. And to succeed in fulfilling these, this multiplicity of callings that rest upon us, revealed by the names, you got to work at it. And uh, I've been working at it 47 years, and I'm still not there. So it's a lifelong endeavor, and it's a joyous journey. It's a difficult and challenging journey at times, but it's worth it all. Mm, mm, mm. In other words, folks, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It's really good to listen to somebody like Mike Shreve talk because it's like, wow, oh man, that's so cool. Oh man, that's, I'm revelating right now. Oh yeah. But see, God has so many things that he needs done in the earth. The reason why there's revelation like this that's going forth is because God has agendas that are, so big, they require people walking in this kind of revelation and manifesting it in their lives. So that your life becomes the evangelist and not just your mouth and the regurgitation of your knowledge. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love what you've put down here, Mike Shreve. Folks, this is the book, Who Am I? It is uh, loaded. I mean, just jam-packed. We, we didn't touch, I don't know, maybe we got 20% of the content. There's so much in there. You uh, will enjoy it greatly. So with that said, do you have any final thoughts before we conclude this program? Well, first of all, I'd love to invite all the people that are listening to my website, uh, to shreveministries.org. And uh, in the near future, having been very inspired by you, dear brother, uh, I hope to have weekly classes uh, on Who Am I? And uh, if anybody wants to just come by and visit our website and, and become part of our email family, we'll certainly let you know. Uh, I am sure that, uh, that many people are very enlightened through your teachings on Bride Movement. And... Uh, and uh, you've inspired me that this knowledge has got to get out to more people. Uh, and so we just urge people to come to shreveministries.org, shreveministries.org. And by the way, in the book, there's 52 chapters. And a lot of churches are using that book to do weekly studies because they're taking their church on a year-long journey into the discovery of their spiritual identity. And so uh, you might want to do that with your church, uh, whatever. And I'm not saying to you uh, personally, but to anyone listening, you might want to do that with your church to go for a year, 52 weeks into a journey of discovering who you are in Christ and uh, get a book for every person. In, uh, and of course, the books are available on Amazon. Books are available on my website. Praise God. And so uh, I love the time I've spent with you. I've enjoyed the time I've spent with you. You're always a phenomenal conversationalist. 
And I really believe our hearts are, are churning with the same revelation. Uh, I always have found a soul-to-soul connection with you, and I appreciate that. Well, we appreciate you. So, folks, check out his website. Check out his book. Um, sign up for his email list. Until next time, God bless and Godspeed. Praise God. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.